Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. We have our interview series where we sit down and have the chats with a range of experts on a whole range of policy areas. We have our 10 minute lesson series where we bring our listeners through a very brief introduction to policy areas, just touching on the things that we think you need to know. And then we have our seminar series, which is a look back at our seminars and our conferences. We'll take one or two papers from each and we give you the opportunity to listen to what you may have missed out on. Now, today's episode is one of those. On Monday, the 27th of June, we launched our Budget Choices 2023, our pre-budget submission, touching on the things that we think government need to do in Budget 2023 to do no harm to those who are most vulnerable. Today's episode is the full seminar, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, so good morning, everybody, uh, and welcome to our Budget Choices 2023 webinar, where we'll set out our proposals for Budget 2023. Um, the document that we will be presenting today is available to download from our website. Uh, so if you either look at the main article on the website today, or you look at the publication section down to the right-hand side, uh, but essentially... This is the document that we will be talking through and we'll be going from beginning to end. It's a slightly restructured version to the one that we usually have. Uh, so presuming that everybody has it or has access to it, um, we're going to go through our proposals by way of presentation. So uh, as we're doing it by webinar, can I please ask those of you who may have questions, if you could put them through to the Q&A section. Uh, at the very bottom of your screen. So to begin proceedings, <coughs> I'm going to introduce the team. My name is Colette Bennett. I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. We have Dr. Sean Healy, CEO, and Michelle Murphy and Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analysts with the organisation. We're going to set the context of this year's budget and bring you through some of our main proposals before finally then taking some questions. So now to Sean, who will go through the context and the fiscal stance. Thanks, Colette. And I think the uh, first thing that nobody will be surprised with is if I say that this is a time of great uncertainty and we are in the context preparing a budget. Uh, government is faced with very serious challenges. Uh, on the one side, there's the cost of living Grow, uh, rising, and that is having a huge impact on everybody. Uh, at the same time, um, there is a danger that we will be heading into inflation and recession, and that that might be uh, a, a, a situation that has all sorts of problems, obviously, if it happens at the same time as a rise in the cost of living. But not alone, that would be complicated enough, but then we might also see it coinciding with a reduction in the windfall corporate, uh, corporate taxes that the, uh, the, the exchequer has been uh, benefiting from in recent years. So very, very difficult situation, very uncertain. Uh, as at the core of um, uh, what we're proposing is a core principle, and that is that the measures adopted in budget 2023 by government should prioritize the protection of the poorest in our society. 
as a result of the rising in the cost of living, no matter if nothing else happened, everybody would still be worse off in the coming year. But some people get hit a lot more than others. And particularly the poorest 20% of the society have borne the, the biggest part of the hit uh, up to now. And that needs to, to be rectified uh, and dealt with. And consequently, if we don't have the income, which we wouldn't have, I think if uh, given the way things are going, if we don't have the income to rectify everything and bring out everybody's standard of living back to where it was, uh, the priority should be given to those on the margin, the people in the poorest 20%. So um, I think when we're talking about um, the stance uh, for the year, the cost of living is rising, but it's very important that government do no harm in what they do and their capacity for causing harm is quite substantial. And I think that in that context, uh, we have to be uh, ready, if you like, um, for uh, dealing with the dealing with the complications that are there. The challenges are substantial, um, and the resources are relatively limited. Um, but the critical issue in that context, one way or another, is that investment is needed. And even if situation, if the outturn for the coming year is very difficult, and that we get inflation and recession and the, a drop in the windfall taxes, we still need to investment very substantially in Ireland because of the uh, resource limitations that we actually have. So uh, we're, asked, we're suggesting that uh, if things get really bad, government should still be prepared to borrow additional resources and use these to invest in long-term infrastructural projects focused on issues like social housing, which are critically, which is critically important, and also other issues around climate change and so on. We have to recognise that Ireland, that Ireland has almost 600,000 people at risk of poverty. 170,000, almost of those, are children, and the sheer scale of the numbers of people living in poverty is worrying, particularly when we consider the sudden and persistent rise in the cost of living, which we've just been referring to. And that impacts, as we've seen, uh, and there's been quite an amount of evidence on it, showing that that impacts most, uh, most strongly uh, on the poorest. So in that context, uh, we're re recommending a package uh, of welfare uh, and low-pay low uh, pri uh, initiatives that would uh, make a big difference in this context, at least in terms of protecting the poorest. And I think that what we're talking about here is um, an increase uh, in welfare uh, of 20 euro a week, but also dealing with uh, the working poor issue in terms of refundable tax credits and the living wage. Uh, in that context, we're trying to deal with the insecurity and the existing challenges of poverty and homelessness and demographic change, low tax take and inferior services. These are the kinds of challenges that are out there and they need to be addressed quite uh, upfront. Uh, and no matter uh, how difficult the situation is, we need to be taking action on these issues. Um, and combining all of uh, with all of that is the issue of migration because we've been, um, having uh, people coming in to the country um, and the numbers have grown unexpectedly because of the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine and the migration of people from Ukraine to Ireland um, and that's providing challenges. 
to the Irish situation. But those challenges were all there before ever anybody came from uh, Ukraine here. So we have problems in terms of housing, in terms of health, in terms of education, in terms of public transport, urban rural divide, those kinds of things, and the list that's there. So I think we have to deal with those. And in one of the issues that we have to deal with in that is that if the situation gets really bad, additional resources may be required and they need to be borrowed. And it's always a, a, an issue that needs to be looked at carefully and closely. But certainly there's a, there's a balance there that needs to be uh, recommended or that needs to be uh, protected. We need investment, investment in uh, infrastructure like social housing and public transport, investment in services such as health and education, um, and investment in social in sort of meeting the income needs as well. In terms of the fiscal stance, then um, uh, Social Justice Ireland would be recommending that budget 2023 prioritise welfare and public expenditure measures uh, designed to protect the most vulnerable groups in our society uh, from the uh, current cost of living challenges. And as well as that, uh, that budget 2023 outlines a large-scale and targeted fiscal stimulus plan focused on additional investment in long-term infrastructure, which can be introduced during 2023 if a sudden and severe economic downturn emerges. There are different possibilities or uh, pos possible pathways forward, and it's important that uh, the budget prepare us for the worst as well as the, the hopefully best uh, scenarios that might emerge. And with that, uh, I'm going to hand on uh, to the next um, uh, P I I part of this presentation, and I go to Colette to present to us on the issue of housing, I think. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, so yes, now we're going to start on our investment packages. First, as Sean said, looking at housing. So we heard from the President of Ireland recently about housing in this country being a disaster and a great failure. At last week's National Economic Dialogue, the Taoiseach referred to housing as the single biggest issue facing the country today, and the Taunashta recognised the need to scale up social housing to free up properties in the private rental sector, which is something that we've been advocating for for quite some time. Now, this comes against the backdrop of the government's Housing for All strategy, which was published last September, and that promised to demonstrate the government's commitment to build the required amount of housing of different tenures to a high standard and in the right location for people of all circumstances. Yet affordability remains, remains a really critical issue. We've seen asking prices rise by 15.2% in the year to March of this year and rent inflation of 11.2% in the year to May 2022. In addition to the affordability crisis, we also have a persistent homelessness crisis with the number of people accessing emergency homeless accommodation currently 10,325 uh, people. Um, as of May this year. Even if the targets that were set out in Housing for All of 33,000 homes a year were adequate, and they are not, we're unlikely to meet them. 2021 saw just over 20,000 homes being built, and the forecast as of the ESRI last, last week um, indicates that 26,000 will be built next year and 27,000 the following year. 
this is a crisis and it should be treated like a crisis with all the levers of state being pulled to make sure that everyone has that basic necessity that is somewhere to live. So that's why in our budget 2023 proposals, we're calling on government to begin the process of doubling the social housing stock to 20% of all housing stock by 2030, starting with an investment of 1.4 billion in addition to what has been committed under Housing for All. There are an estimated 133,000 households in need of long-term secure social housing. When we count the waiting lists, HAP, that is the Housing Assistance Payment, and RAS, the Rental Accommodation Scheme, tenancies. The full commitment under Housing for All, if achieved, would provide for less than three quarters of that amount. We call on government to abolish supply-side subsidies, such as the Help to Buy scheme, which again, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office's analysis last week, is increasing in cost, is supporting increasingly expensive house purchases, and is being paid to people who don't need it. In fact, one third of all recipients had a deposit of at least 20% of the asking price, if not more. This scheme, which cost almost 200 million last year, should be abolished and the money should instead be used to expand the delivery of Housing First, where housing and wraparound supports are provided to vulnerable adults to homeless families. We want to see investment in communities, starting with a 100 million um, allocation in Budget 2023 to ensure that existing communities with a large proportion of social housing have sufficient amenities and supports. That would not only support those communities and the people who are there at the moment, but may remove some of the so-called barriers to building additional homes in areas which, without this type of support, just could not cope with the additional population. And to avoid homelessness, we are seeking the introduction of an equity scheme for borrowers in long-term mortgage arrears of 10 years plus. The government is not adverse to having equity schemes. They have one for the affordable home scheme. This is on the other side and will actually prevent homelessness. It will alleviate the constant pressure that families are facing while they're making uh, their mortgage payments and will make those mortgage payments more affordable. Again, to start this off, we're proposing a pilot of 100 million in 2023. And finally, we want to see an increase in private rent inspections to ensure that properties in the private rented sector are actually fit for purpose and are tenantable. Moving on then to Michelle. Thanks, Colette. So we're now moving on to uh, another, I suppose, uh, our second strategic priority area for investment, which is just transition. And I mean, it's no surprise to anyone on our webinar here that we're facing a very challenging pathway to reaching our, our targets for 2030, which is a 51% reduction over um, our 2018 levels of emissions. And we're likely to see the policies to implement the carbon budgets being signed off in the coming weeks. Now, the first two carbon budgets have already been set out by the um, Climate Change Advisory Council. And um, we're looking in the first carbon budget, a reduction of 4.8% in emissions, the second one, a reduction of 8.3%. Now, and we also know from the latest EPA report that the sectors involved need to be looking at the upper end of the targets in terms of meeting the, you know, the emissions reductions that we need by 2030, which is going to be very challenging for every sector. So in terms of um, the policy proposals we have in this area, the first one is to implement the recommendations of the IG's report on the impact of taxation on aviation, which is actually to make jet kerosene or aviation fuel subject to the carbon tax. So this would bring in 
over 630 million in budget 2023. I think when you're the key to reaching our climate goals is actually each sector reaching the targets that they've been set and each sector making a significant contribution. So I think we've reached a stage now when, when you're looking at the transport sector, for example, you can't have one element of that sector who's exempt from making a contribution when every other sector is being called on and every individual is being called on to make their contribution. Then in terms of, we obviously advocate the continued increase of the carbon tax and that this be diverted to just uh, funding, uh, just transition and all the different social and economic and environmental supports that are required in this regard. We're looking for a windfall tax on energy suppliers, which should bring in 100 million euro budget 2023, given the crisis we find ourselves in. We're also looking for 100 million euros to support renewable energy programs and community energy advisors and a circular economy package. We welcomed the publication of the circular economy bill. So we're looking for funding for the package of about 10 million euros in budget 2023. Now, when it comes to uh, the just transition, obviously just transition and rural Ireland and the regions are, are inextricably linked. So when it comes to regional development and rural Ireland, we have to make sure that you know, many of those communities and people employed in rural Ireland, and in fact, the agricultural sector itself, are going to be some of those most impacted by the policies we do need to implement to reach our targets by 2030. And we have to be cognizant of how challenging that this will be, but also the ongoing support that those communities and those individuals will require over a period of time. So first off, we're looking for uh, an increased allocation of funding to rural development with a particular focus on transition and those social, economic and environmental supports required of 100 million euros in budget 2023. Uh, we're looking for additional funding for Enterprise Ireland to support those SMEs and micro enterprises with a particular regional focus of 25 million and we're looking at additional funding for Fall to Ireland, I suppose, to promote the regions, because if you are looking long term, really long term, and if we are to meet our climate goals, then obviously uh, international tourism should reduce over time. So we need to be looking at how we promote the country for uh, national tourists and how we make things more affordable for people who want to take their holidays within Ireland. The continued rollout of rural broadband and remote hubs will obviously be crucial to rural and regional development. And I'm actually coming to you from one of the, the rural hubs this morning. So we're looking for continued support for those in terms of not just the broadband, but the supporting infrastructure that those hubs will require both in budget 2023 and beyond as they expand, uh, take on additional users and add additional services and support not only individuals, but SMEs and micro enterprises as well. And finally, then we're looking for an increase in the rural transport program of 60 million euros, because we need to be looking at the link between the rural transport program, I suppose, last mile transport and our national transport networks and how they all linked up. Because if we are going to meet our targets in the transport sector, we need all of those to link up and people must have access to public transport, particularly those in rural areas. And I'm going to pass over to my colleague, Suzanne, now to look at the whole area of communities. Thank you. Social Justice Ireland attended the Social Inclusion Forum last week, and it really hit home that whilst we're looking at national policies, we live our lives at local community level. So this is of vital, vital, vital importance. The first task we have here is to adequately resource the community, ser sorry, community services programme. 
This programme is a vital support for communities who experience high levels of deprivation and marginalisation. The programme supports community-led initiatives to fill a gap that would otherwise not be filled by the market because it provides employment opportunities to those furthest from the market. So the Budget 2023 ask is that 9 million be allocated to bring core funding for staff in all of the programmes to the current level of the national minimum wage and index this amount then to future increases. And again, in line with the government's stated intention to bring national minimum wage up to the living wage. The funding challenges, I suppose, overall faced by the sector since 2008 have never been resolved and are further exacerbated by we, we have an ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. It feels like we're post-COVID, but we're not. Coupled with rising costs for basic goods and utilities, and again, the arrival of thousands of refugees from the Ukraine. So this sector has responded to all of those extra demands while simultaneously dealing with a loss of fundraising. So it's essential that government resource this sector into the future and that it remains committed to the principle of providing multi-annual multi statutory funding. That's so important to know where you're going to be two, three years down the line. So we propose an increase of 30 million to the voluntary and community sector to ensure the continuation of the provision of these key, the vital supports and services in our communities. The PPNs, again, very close to Social Justice Ireland's hearts. These are the primary mechanism for local authority engagement with communities. They're an important step in fostering a more democratic local government structure. And again, I cannot stress enough when we look around the world, democracy is fragile. We take it for granted. We do need to protect it. We still have a long way to go in building real participation and partnership in local government decision making. So investment in community engagement is needed then to support this capacity building. So to this end, an additional allocation of 2 million should be made in budget 2023 to support the work of the PPNs. COVID again has highlighted the inequalities experienced by the traveller community. Issues of overcrowding and poor standards of accommodation were of key concern in a pandemic that resulted in basically stay at home orders. We have unacceptably high unemployment rates. We have unacceptably high rates of poor mental health and self-harm. We have unacceptably low life expectancy. So again, we're asking for government to reinstate funder for traveller specific initiatives of an extra one million. Uh, I'm going to get quicker now. Libraries is the next one here. These are crucial spaces. And again, for, for, for healthy democracies, we need to have spaces that are free first of all they provide access for all for information learning entertainment and again importantly spaces to gather that are really really essential so again we're looking for increased fundings for libraries of two million and the last one here then is access to financial products and i suppose they're a major part of how we manage the money in our household these days and technology has increased the variety of financial products that we've access to sometimes almost immediate access to, to finance or to products. So we need to ensure that we, whilst having access to these products as well, that we're also being equipped with the tools and the knowledge in order to navigate this space. So what we're looking for is government to develop research on both financial literacy and inclusion at the cost of one million. Thank you very much. And I think I'm handing back to Michelle for this one. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. And we're now moving to health. Uh, uh, Another area um, which is in the headlines this morning, and we're well aware of the challenges within the health service waiting lists were over, we're almost 625,000 people are waiting on for outpatient treatment in May of this year. So despite the resources that are going into the health service, we still have a challenge of a model of healthcare, which is defined really as 
with an overemphasis on hospitals and acute care rather than primary and social care being more central to that. And if you if people are to be insured of the required treatment and care in times of illness and vulnerability, then we need to promote that primary and social care. And we did welcome the allocation of 240 million to this area in budget 2022. And we'd like to see this expanded in budget 2023 because without significant and sustained investment in areas such as general practice, primary care, community-based services, then the, the proposed implementation of the regional health areas will not succeed. And then you won't have that transformation of the health service in line with what is envisaged within Slauncha Care. So in terms of budget 2023, we're looking for uh, an increased investment of 100 million euros in delivering enhanced community care. We will also are looking for the 500 million euro infrastructure set allocation set out in the vision for Slaunter Care to be allocated and resourced and rolled out. Uh, an additional then 100 million euro to uh, support universal access to general practice. And we know the challenges, particularly people in rural areas, have in terms of accessing. Uh, GP and also to uh, roll out and continue to provide the support for the community health networks. We're looking for an investment of 50 million euros in community nursing facilities and rehabilitation beds, which are crucial in terms of that step down element when people come out of an acute hospital to enable them to remain in their communities. They need the, that support. And finally, then the full implementation of this sharing the vision mental health strategies so the resourcing there is 35 million but we, we we know the challenges in terms of the number of young people waiting on cams waiting lists and in terms of just resourcing all the elements for our mental health strategy so this would be vital in this regard now moving on then to disability and carers we all know that the the impact that I suppose the previous cuts uh, when we faced the financial crisis had on people living with a dis disability and on carers. So uh, firstly, we're looking to restore the cuts to disability services in full and the introduction of a cost of disability payment of 20 euros a week. I think it's vital that government acknowledge that there is additional cost to having a disability and this should be acknowledged in budgetary terms and the commitment should be to introduce a cost of disability payment and then over time implementing the recommendations of the cost of disability report published by in. Indicon earlier this year. We're also looking for increased investment in things like PA services, respite care, disability services, 40 million euros. We're looking for an increase in the domiciliary care allowance, an expansion of the free travel scheme to domiciliary care allowance recipients, and an increase in the carer support grant. And we're also looking for an independent review of the carer's allowance itself to see if it's fit for purpose in terms of income adequacy, how it interacts with income thresholds and how it interacts with other pay payments. And if it is truly fit for purpose, I think this is incredibly important given the, the, the value of the work that's often unrecognised that carers do in Irish society. Moving on then to education, which is another crucial area and has also been in the news in recent days. So we're looking for 140 million investment in higher education. So 40 million, I suppose, to, to, to expand uh, current services. And then the 100 million is to make up the shortfall that has been identified by the Department of Further and Higher Education and Public Expenditure of the shortfall of over 300 million. So we, in terms of uh, funding for higher education, so we'd like to see the shortfall made up over three budgets. We're, 
further education, lifelong learning and actually apprenticeships are going to be key to meeting our housing targets and our climate targets. So we're looking for further investment there of 40 million, an increase in the maintenance grant for full-time students at third level, 1,000 euros and an apprenticeship program is funded, focused particularly on travellers. Um, uh, we're looking at 2 million euro for, for a pilot for that and then looking at expansion, particularly at those uh, roles that are going to come up at a, re a regional level, uh, which are, I suppose, long roles that have longevity, things like retrofitting, things like the, the green economy. And we're also looking for the increase in the employer's contribution to the National Training Fund levy, which, it, which is an annual increase. And that, that should obviously go to funding some of the services that we have outlined here in terms of training, in terms of skills development, in terms of looking how we how we do that at a regional level so that we can ensure that the, the people in those areas have the skills for the, the new roles that will actually emerge in those regions. Uh, moving now more towards the primary level, we're looking for a restoration of the back to school clothing and footwear allowance to 2011 levels, an increase in the school funding for the school meals programme, which was, has been a vital support, particularly during COVID an increase in capitation grants of 10% of primary and second level, increased support for debt schools, which is crucial because we do know that those who are most impacted by the uh, pandemic-induced school clovers, closures were those students who were most disadvantaged. And it's, I suppose, a real concern for us that we'll actually begin to lose ground on, on the progress that has been made in terms of uh, addressing educational disadvantage and one of the key areas to do this, obviously, is to reduce pupil-teacher ratio, particularly at primary level, where, where the impact is greatest. So we're looking at a, uh, an investment there to reduce this, the pupil-teacher ratio by one point in, at primary level. Now, moving on to children. Um, so in, in the document itself, in the briefings on page 9 and 12, we're sort of, uh, it's a stated uh, policy position of Social Justice Ireland that we want to move our investment in early childhood care and education to the OECD average. So we'd be looking at a 115 million euro investment in budget 2023 to, to begin to move to, to provide both a quality service and accessible service and be able to match the investment that is uh, available in countries that we call our peers. Uh, we know there's an announcement coming in terms of wages for childcare workers, but to ensure that this, those wages are actually at a living wage level or above, we're looking for a, a 30 million euro investment in the core funding scheme to ensure that those wages are at the living wage or above. We're looking for increased fund funding for TUSLA to look at child protection and social provision for children. I suppose this takes on a, a, an additional element of need now. Given the huge increase in, in children just in the past number of months who are entering our schools or childcare facilities who are, are fleeing war in Ukraine. So I think that funding is vital. Uh, Minister O'Gorman announced he launched the National Action Plan for uh, Ireland's Child Guarantee, which we welcomed. And, and to look at beginning the implementation, implementation of the European Child Guarantee and that we reached the targets both set out in the, the plan and reached the goals that. We've set ourselves at a European level. We see uh, um, an initial investment of three and a half million in budget 2023 to, to coordinate our national action plan and to ensure that the, the goals that we have set ourselves, that we reach 
because it's crucial that we support children and young people in terms of housing, access to education, access to healthcare. Those things are vital to, to provide, I suppose, um, access to opportunities in later life. We're also looking for increased investment in refuge spaces and supports for victims of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence of over 120 million. And I'm going to pass over to my colleague Colette now, who is going to look at older people. Thank you very much. Um, so as Michelle said, I'm going to talk about older people in terms of income and services. We are an aging population, which is an absolute success story, but government has failed to properly plan for the shift, leaving many older people without the necessary secure accommodation, health and social supports that they so need. In just the last week, we saw reports of two older people who were found dead in their home having died 18 months previously. And we saw an 84 year old woman with dementia collapsing in court on charges of having removed 20 euros worth of materials from her neighbor's yard. We need to do better. The Central Statistics Office analysis of inflation shows that in March, when inflation was 6.7%, generally, people aged 65 plus experienced a rate of 7.2%. Older people are more likely to spend more of their money on heat, and the cost of home heating oil increased by 102% in the year to March 2022. We're therefore calling on government to increase the state contributory and non-contributory pension by 20 euro a week and to introduce a universal state social welfare pension system. And we have provided for that. Um, our most recent publication actually is from 2018, but we have been advocating for this for quite some time. To ensure that older people can age well at home, as the majority would absolutely like to do, we're proposing a reinstatement of the funding to housing adaptation grants, which were cut in 2010, beginning with an additional 85 million in budget 2023, and the introduction of a statutory right to home care, which was promised to be delivered in 2021, but has not yet been delivered, and an increase in current home care provision of 90 million in 2023. In recognition of the work undertaken by the community and voluntary sector, and in addition to what Suzanne mentioned earlier on, um, in supporting older people in their homes, a multi-annual increase in funding is required, starting with 35 million in this year's budget. And with just under 4% of the older population living in nursing home accommodation and the additional and complex needs that many of those, those older people have, we propose an additional 35 million for nursing home care. And finally, on this issue, to safeguarding. More than a third of all safeguarding reports made to the HSE safeguarding office last year were made by people aged 65 plus. So that's over 3,000 older people reporting safeguarding concerns. We're calling on government to increase the capacity of the National Safeguarding Office by 5%, which will require an additional investment of 12.5% in budget 2023. And I'm going to pass back to my colleague now, Suzanne. Thank you very much. Social Justice Ireland was at both the National Economic Dialogue and the Social Inclusion Forum last week and the conversation at one talked about a cost of living budget but the conversation at the other one discussed an anti-poverty budget, poverty proofing the budget. So you can imagine I suppose both of these conversations are quite simply saying that we need to address the increases as a key feature of budget 2023. Now we're very conscious I suppose that every household is and will continue to experience cost of living increases. It's those households for whom these increases are actually causing a crisis that we're most concerned about. 
So recent analysis published by the CSO shows that these rising costs do have a disproportionate impact on those on the lowest incomes. Poverty data, again from the CSO released in May of this year, demonstrated how adequate social welfare payments are required to prevent and address poverty. So without the social welfare system, 38.6% of Irish population would have been living in poverty in 2021. The social welfare system reduced the poverty rate by 27 percentage points to 11.6%. So such an underlying poverty rate suggests a deeply unequal distribution of direct income. Our key ask is that core social welfare rates be increased by 20 euro a week at a cost of 878 million. And this is grounded, I suppose, in, in research. This is grounded in, in the numbers. So over a decade ago, Budget 2007 benchmarked minimum social welfare rate at 30% of gross average industrial earnings. When we move forward to 2022, the updated value of this is 27.5% apologies of average weekly earnings, which gives us a figure of 235 euro, implying a shortfall of 27 between the current minimum social welfare rate of 208 and this threshold. So the importance of this benchmark to the living standards of many in Irish society and its relevance to anti-poverty commitments. The current deficit really highlights the need for budget 2023 to further increase the minimum social welfare rate. And it's even more critical now in light of the increases to the essentials such as rent heating, energy costs, and the risk to food security. Extending the fuel allowance then to 32 weeks at a cost of 51.6 million. I was just looking this morning, an energy price comparison site lists gas price increases since October 2020 from all of the various providers at rates of between 47 and 118%. Electricity then went between 46 and 100% with bills going up anywhere between 825 a year to 2,247 a year. So energy costs are one of the main drivers of the rise in inflation. And again, as we've already noted, it's those low income households that spend more of their income on heating and light bills. They tend to live in older homes. And as Colette said, it's older people as well who need to live in warm, secure, safe homes. So we really need to, to address that by extending out the fuel allowance. I think I'm the first. I think I'm the first person to say two tier in this webinar. So here we go. Um, the if you are aged between eighteen and twenty four and you are not living independently, your job seekers rate is one hundred and seventeen euro seventy a week. So there's very little that that can be done. I mean, when you're on that rate, so even trying to look for a job, I would imagine, is very very difficult when you're on one hundred and seventeen seventy. Does it give you enough money to get to and from interviews, to have a haircut, to wear a suit, to be able to you know top up your phone, to be able to even look for work? So what we're asking for is that job seekers' rates for under twenty fives be equalised to the standard core rate at a cost of seventy seven point two million. We welcomed the recent government announcement of the introduction of a living wage to replace the national minimum wage, something we have been calling for for some time. However, we were disappointed that the calculation proposed, which was of 60% of median income, falls short of what's actually required. The living wage technical group, of which we are a member, set the living wage for 2021 at 12.90, which is higher than the 12.17 an hour rate calculated by government. We're further disappointed that the living wage will not be fully implemented until 2026, which is four years from now. That's a long time. 
We note that the low pay commission may be given discretion to introduce the living wage faster or slower than what's proposed. And we would urge both government and the commission to do that, you know, to, to really to bring it forward to offset the impact of inflation on low income households. So we really need to move that minimum wage towards the, the real living wage. And we're at practically full employment. The documentation from the National Economic Dialogue stated that we are at 73% employment. There's a record number of jobs, 2,505,800. But we can see, it, it, they're seared into my brain, that number now, these jobs will grow and evolve and shift. So we also need to be able to do that. And we will need support all the way through our working lives as the skills required will also shift and change. So in order to, I suppose, facilitate those of us who are in the labour market to continue to be in the labour market for as long as we choose, and those maybe who are having difficulty in, in entering it, that we increase resources for training, upskilling and higher education. Thank you. And I think, yes, this one is also mine. Um, international protection. So as of this year, we had just over eight and a half thousand people living within the direct provision system and that they were spread across 73 separate locations comprising both main centres and emergency accommodation. And then in contrast to an addition to those already seeking international protection, by the end of May, we had 33,000 Ukrainian refugees had arrived. Um, they've been granted automatic temporary protection status with many more expected. The majority of them are women and children. So neither the day report from 2020 or the subsequent white paper a year later in 2021, which sets out government policy to replace the direct provision system and establish a new international protection support service could have predicted my second time, a two tier system for those seeking protection. We welcomed the commitment in the programme for government to abolish the direct provision system and move away from the for profit model. The development of this new model of delivery was due to begin in Feb 2021 on a phase basis to be completed by December 2024. And again, that's approaching very, very swiftly. So between now and then, I suppose what we're hoping for, what we're calling for is that those seeking international protection, that they get the supports that they require. We need to introduce the international protection child payment for children in direct provision at a cost of two million. We need to ensure that the vulnerability assessments that are provided for in the white paper on the elimination are implemented. We also need to, it's the, the accommodation I think really is, is, a, is a key point. So one of the significant challenges I suppose to the implementation is that providing of accommodation. The white paper did set out that this new system aims to support those applying for protection to integrate an island from day one with health, education, housing and employment supports, along the lines of what we've seen in the response for those coming from the Ukraine. This new system would aim to house applicants in new not-for-profit reception and integration centres for no more than four months. And after the first four months, then anyone with a claim in progress will move to accommodation within the community. However, as of December 2021, there are 1,761 individuals with leave to stay who are still living in the direct provision system because they have nowhere to move on to. So accommodation is going to be a key aspect of this. And I suppose as we've highlighted, this really just magnifies the issues that were, we were experiencing as a society before, access to childcare, access to education, access to housing, access to adequate health. 
So what we are hoping for there is that, the pro you know, to deliver this appropriate accommodation as per the white paper, we're looking for an international investment of 500 million. And again, we're looking really at the, our response to the Ukrainian refugees as a blueprint for a better system, as a better way of moving ahead. Thank you. I think I'm going back to Colette now. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne, for that. Um, and I suppose it's it's fitting that it moves on from Suzanne's last piece when we talk about ODA and we recognise and fully acknowledge the fact that we are part of a global system, that those of us in the global north are in a very privileged position. In April 2022, Irish Aid published its Climate and Environment Finance Report for 2020, and that detailed what it called the levels and channels of Ireland's international climate finance in the opening paragraph of the executive summary of that report, the department confirms that the programme for government sets out a commitment to double the proportion of ODA, that is climate finance, by 2030. And it also references the commitment by the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, to the provision of £225 million per year of climate finance to developing countries by 2025. However, it has to be acknowledged that ODA and climate finance are not the same thing. And by conflating the two, we run the risk of reneging on both of our international commitments in that regard. In our budget 2023 proposals, we're calling on government to develop a strategy with a view to reaching the UN target of 0.7% of national income by 2027, beginning with an allocation of 207.6 million euro in 2023. However, this needs to provide clear delineation between ODA and climate finance. Rebuilding our commitment to ODA, honouring the UN target and developing a comprehensive strategy to meet our ODA and climate finance targets should be an important policy path for Ireland to pursue in the coming years. We also support the call for permanent cancellation of all external debt payments due from developing countries in 2022 with no penalties and the provision of additional emergency finance that does not create more debt given that currently 60 countries spend more on debt servicing than they do on their own healthcare. And finally then, how do we pay for all of this? So obviously, Sean referred earlier to the need to borrow, and that will be important, and also the need to make reforms to the taxation system and to ensure that it's fairer and more transparent. We believe that Budget 2023 should avoid, use, avoid using taxation measures as a means of providing short-term solutions to the cost of living challenges all of society now faces. Reductions in income tax, indirect taxes, excise duties and levies represent very poorly targeted measures and should be avoided. As Suzanne said, the most sensible use of available resources is to target increases in core social welfare rates alongside targeted welfare supports for certain groups. We believe that government should keep its commitments to increase the carbon tax that is important by €7.50 per tonne in Budget 2023, and Michelle outlined all of the reasons why these things are absolutely necessary. This would generate £160 million in a full year, which should then be used to fund a series of targeted measures to protect those that are most affected by that tax, so low-income households and, and rural households. We need to provide a social safety net through the social insurance system. So in European terms, Ireland collects very low levels of employers PRSI. For most jobs, the rate in Ireland is 11.05% compared to an EU average, 
of 21.29%. So we believe that we should begin to increase this in budget 2023, starting with a 1% um, a year increase for the next five years to reach 15.05% by 2028. The initial increase should be delayed to begin from April of next year, and that would raise an additional 500 million in 2023. I mentioned the housing disaster earlier. Uh, building the right homes in the right areas will provide a significant part of the solution, but obviously it won't provide all. The latest preliminary results from the census that were published last year, or sorry, last week, suggest that there are approximately 166,000 vacant properties in the state. Budget 2023 should empower local authorities to collect a new site value tax on underdeveloped land, such as abandoned um, urban centre sites and land banks of zoned land. This should be levied at a rate of €2,000 per hectare or part of a hectare per annum and replace the current vacant site levy. We further propose that Budget 2023 introduce a levy on empty houses of €200 Euro per month with the revenue from this charge collected and kept by local authorities. Income from both of those measures would yield £75 million for local authorities in 2023 and could reduce their central fund allocation. Other tax measures that are set out in the document on pages 13 and 14 would include limiting the ability of individuals and corporations to carry losses forward with a rolling limit of five years commencing at midnight on budget night, which would yield an additional 100 million in 2023. Reforming the R&D tax credit, which allows some very profitable firms to reduce their tax liability to near or less than zero, which would provide an additional 150 million to the exchequer in a full year. Abolish the SARP or the Special Assignee Relief Programme, which would generate 45 million next year. Increase in-shop or online betting duty to 3%. Uh, increase to 32%, the minimum effective tax rate for people who are earning 400,000 per annum plus. Uh, restore the non-principal private residence charge on second homes at 500 euro a year. Increase capital gains and capital acquisitions tax from 33% to 35%. Increase the, from 7.5% to 8% the stamp duty on non-residential properties. Introduce the stamp duty on, on high volume or sorry, high worth residential properties. So those in amount in excess of 1 million to 5%. Standard rate all pension related tax reliefs and standard rate discretionary non-pension tax expenditures costing 5 million plus. Introduce, and this is very dear to our heart, the refundable tax credits for the two main income tax credits at a cost of 140 million, which would put some level of income into the pockets of those who are on the lowest wages and allocate 45 million to revenue for tax compliance and enforcement. So with that, then I'm going to hand you back to Sean to look at the proposed framework for delivering this kind of fair recovery and this proposed budget. Sean. Thanks, Colette. And uh, I think it's, um, I suppose, the context um, when we look at all, everything that's being presented, uh, I think we, we recognise very clearly that proceeding as we have done in recent years will not address the challenges that Ireland faces. And it's important to recognise that these challenges existed before the arrival of COVID-19, uh, the various things that we have been identifying there. So what we're arguing for is a new social contract. We've been arguing for this for a while, and we've 
argued it very strongly because the old social contract is broken and we need to have some way of ensuring that all sectors of society have a common kind of understanding of what's accepted and what's expected, what's expected of them and what is then expected in response from the, from the state as well. This new social contract should be focused on building um, a sustainable and resilient economy and society that delivers for everyone. But to achieve a, a sustainable and resilient economy, uh, there are basically a number of things that need to be done. You won't deliver a, 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 a good economy without, in fact, putting decent services and infrastructure into place. And uh, without uh, just taxation, you won't be able to pay for the decent services and infrastructure. So we're arguing that if you want a vibrant economy, you need decent services and infrastructure, you need just taxation, you also need good governance to make it happen. You need, particularly in that area, you need social dialogue involving all the sectors of society. That's critically important. And then everything you do, everything we do, needs to be done in a sustainable way that's environmentally sustainable, but also economically sustainable. And often forgotten, it needs to be socially sustainable as well, because we need to be building a society in which people want to live in the first place. Now, in that context, then, what we've been basically outlining here is a series of packages, if you like, uh, set, uh, that um, we uh, are placing at the core of uh, what we our major asks are. Um, our housing, um, the vibrant economy area, we are talking about 1.4 billion in addition to what's already in the in the budget um, planning, are already committed uh, to housing, pensions and older people, just over a billion, rural and regional development, 410 million. Um, but that's the vibrant economy. We need decent services and infrastructure to deliver that. So health, disability, and carers, uh, 1.4 billion education over 400 million in addition to what's there already obviously all of this and children and families uh, we're suggesting 237 million increase in their allocation but to make that happen we need just taxation so um we're talking about a just taxation measure the just taxation measures amounting to 2.1 billion that's the net figure after you've taken a uh, taken out the various things that we're talking about taking out and putting in the various things uh, that we're talking about putting in um, you need good governance uh, community is critical in this area and we have a 67 million um, uh, budget in there for our community as, as outlined already and the whole sustainability issue is critically important uh, not alone just because we're trying to de deliver on environmental and uh, economic and social sustainability, but we're actually trying to manage that just transition to get from here to there as well. So you're talking there about 562 million. So I think in the, at the end of the day, what we're basically arguing uh, is to go back to where we started, that we have one core principle, that the measures adopted prioritize the protection of the most vulnerable groups in our society, and that we need to tackle key issues such as housing and the climate targets, that we need to do this in a way um, that 
obviously recognizes the importance of the economy, but also recognizes the importance of services and infrastructure to deliver those, and then the importance of taxation in that area, good governance and sustainability as well. And in all of that, we're not uh, forgetting the fact that at the end of the day, uh, people need uh, income to deal with the issues uh, being presented by the rising cost of living. As we often say, uh, uh, tackling poverty, tackling uh, the kinds of pressures that are there at the moment on the poorest 20% or more of our society um, is never just about income, but it's always about income. And therefore the requirements to increase welfare by 20 euro a week, to make tax credits refundable, and uh, to increase the uh, level of the, the, the minimum wage to bring it up to the full living wage. And that's the, 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 these are the core proposals that we are making within the context that we have identified. And with that, I'm handing you back to Colette to anchor questions and answers from here on. I'm sure there's plenty to be, to be addressed. Thank you very much. Uh, there certainly are. Uh, so I'm going to stop the share okay, and have us all back uh, on the screen. Um, so thank you so much for those of you who have put forward your questions. It's great to see so many uh, coming in. Um, Sean, there's one for you here from uh, Ruth Dowling. Uh, will the type of spending set out in your budget proposals not just further increase inflation? And there's, there's almost a kind of a follow up to that. Um, by a, a John Kelly. Thank you both. Uh, with all of this spending, what's the plan to guard against future economic shocks and recession? I think it's important maybe to recognise that uh, we're not in the business of trying to increase inflation. Inflation is, a, is an issue that we, we do not want to see grow. But the, the bottom line is that there's different types of expenditure. There's expenditure that could increase inflation without any, any doubt. Uh, we're not recommending expenditure that would increase inflation. Um, insofar as we're talking about income distribution and increasing people's income, it's at the bottom of the pile. Uh, we're talking about the poorest 20, 25%. Uh, that's people on core welfare rates, people uh, on uh, in low paid jobs. Um, they're, they're nowhere near uh, the kinds of levels of income and uh, spending that would be required uh, to uh, impact uh, on inflation as such. But the other side of that as well, uh, the, the, the second part of that question that you had, um, the, um, the, 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 uh, what's the plan to guard against future economic shocks and recession? I think what we're talking about to deal with, uh, that, that there needs to be a recognition that we go beyond uh, where we have been uh, too often in recent decades, and that is responding to the immediate. We need to put in place the infrastructure, the social provision, the, the services, and the infrastructure that people uh, would argue for. We also, and would expect in a Western European developed economy, uh, but we also need to put in place a fairer tax system with a tax take at the level that is required to pay for that society. And then, when you're in that that space, and if you're doing that kind of um, um, expenditure and development taxation, but also doing it in a sustainable manner, um, covering that other that other piece, and also 
engaging the various sectors of society in an ongoing discussion about the shape of the society, the decisions that have to be made, the choices that, that are being faced and what those priorities should be, then you're in a really good place to deal with any future economic shock that comes or any recession that we might be hit with. Thank you very much. Um, one for Suzanne, and this is coming in from Nesson Vaughan. Hi, Nesson. Um, it's, it's more of a comment, he said. We should insist on government implement, sorry, we should insist on government implement its own strategy for the community and voluntary sector. There is an increasing trend towards privatization of services through commissioning of services traditionally provided by the community and voluntary sector based on a particular interpretation of EU procurement law. This needs to be challenged, as it is, in my opinion, ideologically driven examples, home help and the, the local employment services. Uh, thanks for that, Nesson. Um, I agree with you, Suzanne. <laughs> <laughs> you I agree with both of you. I mean, th there was this sort of school of thought that if we treated everything like a business, that they would become more, I suppose, more efficient and, you know, th that they would deliver services better. But you can't care. Deliver the delivery of care isn't a business model. The delivery of social supports to the vulnerable and the marginalised, that's that doesn't operate within that sort of business structure. So I completely agree with you, like that privatization of care, the privatization of, of these sort of social supports. And even just to go back to say, like the community services program that we talked about, like their, their model is to create, I suppose, sustainable jobs for disadvantaged groups. So that's not, that's not you know, the, the whole nonprofit thing, I think sometimes confuses business people because they can't understand well, what's your end game? What's the point of this? And again, like the community services program, you know, they reinvest within it's money's put back into the program. So I think I think nonprofit confuses the neoliberal mindset. But the, the privatization of care, the privatization of, um, as you said, employment services, that everything needs to be looked at like a business. And that I, again, I think you're absolutely right as well, that the delivery of these services can be efficient and can provide value and the difficulty is we no longer know how to give value to something that we can't put a price on i think that's really there's been a real difficulty in in modern you know in being able to sort of say well well what value is it because we're not able to put a price on it and that's exactly why there's value is because you can't put a price on it so mm -hmm. i mean the community and voluntary sector now more than ever i mean we saw a community call the value of that over the, the COVID period, the social inclusion forum. I mean, you know, you had speakers from everywhere across the country, from all these diverse different backgrounds, speaking up on behalf of the communities that they were either involved with or, or part of or advocated on behalf of. So I suppose it might be worth going back to um, to the, the document that you have uh, that you've put in the in, in, in the comments there in the um, I mean, the five-year strategy, I suppose, 2019 to 24, 2024, the sustainable, inclusive and empowered communities. Again, we're almost at a, we're halfway through it. So we really need to go back, I suppose, and, and view what the difference it makes. But again, I can't stress enough, local is where we live our life. Community is where we live our life. So even though we're talking about the high level national stuff, it's, it's what's happening around my home here that is of major concern to me. So we really need to protect our communities at all costs. Thank you very much.
Um, so there's another question in from Nat O'Connor. Nat, thank you very much. Have you floated the 20 euro core social welfare ask with any officials and or politicians? And if so, what kind of response have you received? So as Suzanne said, we've been at the Social Inclusion Forum, we've been at the National Economic Dialogue, um, and we certainly have raised this. And I, I note that uh, Minister Joe O'Brien was out this morning talking about increases, but I might head that one over to Sean, uh, if I can. Thank you. No problem. We, we certainly have floated the, the, the 20 euro increase simply because we've, we've been flagging for a while that this is the kind of level of increase that's required. Um, and that doesn't give any great gain uh, to, to, to people at core rates because remember they got no increase at all for two of the last three budgets and then they got five euro of an increase. Uh, now that five euro of an increase in the budget of 2022 uh, is about 12 euro short of maintaining the value of the payment at the start of the year. So, uh, they, so this this brings me to Minister O'Brien's comment because he's talking about a, a ten euro a week increase. Now, if that's what comes in budget uh, twenty three uh, later this year, then I think we have to recognise that what government is doing in making that decision is is deciding that the poorest in society are going to be further left behind or left further behind because in effect that is a, a, a when you start putting in inflation for 2023 that will mean that the value of their social welfare payment that they're already struggling with in a rising cost of living will fall in effect by a 10 euro uh, so it, it like the government might like to see it as they're giving 10 mm -hmm. euro but when they should be giving 20 that's 10 euro short the over the period of the year the value of the welfare rate will fall in 10 euro. And like that, for me, is just totally unacceptable. So um, people might talk about the importance of it or whatever, or sorry, how the difficulty of it and how much it would cost and so on. Uh, and I think um, they, they sometimes different things get lumped together. We've pulled them apart here. For example, uh, we've been advocating 20 euro for the pension payment and 20 euro on the core welfare uh, rates and then commensurate different changes in, in, in other pieces. But the bottom line in that is that the money that's being, that would, this, this, this change, these changes would cost go uh, are only a fraction of what's available, for example, in tax breaks in the corporate side. So I think it's important to bear that in mind when government is making choices about the shape of the future and the type of future uh, that, uh, that people want that government wants uh, Ireland to, to, to move towards. Yeah, I mean, there was some discussion around, you know, indexing the the, the rate, or sorry, the the, the PRSI and, and all of the kind of employment pieces. Um, and if you were to index it, when we did the numbers on it, it's, it's over 2 billion. If you were to index it again, it's the latest uh, inflation rate. So if we're willing to do that for employment, then we need to be able to do something for people who are on their knees on social welfare. Um, Michelle, if I can ask you, there, this one has come in from Angela Ryan. Um, the papers were again coming down on farmers and their emissions targets, but farmers are struggling to make ends meet. 
they do well to meet the 22% reduction, um, even though you're looking for more, surely the energy and transport industries are better able to take those kind of financial hits. Thanks for that. And thanks, Angela. And yes, they are struggling consistently. Apart from dairy farms, I, I think the majority of farmers have been relying on uh, the basic payment. And actually, that makes up the majority of their income. And that's just not a that's not a new phenomenon. It's a trend over the past decade or more. And then you have to consider that dairy farms themselves also have a high proportion of debt. Despite higher income, they also have a high proportion of debt. Uh, that said, it is one of the highest measures. And um, I think it was uh, a professor from UCC pointed out last week that if agriculture only reaches the 22%, which is the very low end of the carbon budget targets, then the other sectors will have to um, make a contribution of 70%, which I certainly don't think is achievable, nor is it fair. Um, I think the challenge for agriculture is that we have waited so long to make changes and to implement changes that now we have a very, very, very limited period of time in which to meet our targets. So we need, I suppose, a fundamental overhaul. I mentioned the aviation taxation in my presentation. We also need to look at actually our farm payment system itself and what it rewards and what it doesn't reward. And we need to completely overhaul that. So it incentivizes those farmers that are already engaged in sustainable activities in the, the good behavior and it, it rewards that activity and the activity that is not um, sustainable that is damaging our environment that should not be financially rewarded for a start the second area uh, and we we make a proposal around this as well obviously if farmers are going to have to make these changes you have to have support that sector in terms of diversifying income a really simple way is the whole issue of energy and putting your energy into the grid but at the moment the rest scheme so the renewable electricity support scheme if you're a, a farmer or if you're a community cooperative uh, you have to go to an auction to buy uh, you know to bid on the opportunity to be able to allow to plug into the grid and supply the grid with your energy i mean that's not sustainable in the long term if we're trying to support people to diversify their income schemes so there certain certainly needs to be um uh, a huge reform of that scheme as it stands and i think in the long run and i mentioned this we need to look at income supports over time so there was a recommendation from the OECD last year that in terms of fuel allowance, the fuel allowance in Ireland should be completely rebranded and actually delinked from fuel and look at how potentially you might expand it and use it as a, a type of income support during the transition. I certainly think that's something we do need to be looking at, I suppose, a, a policy lever to support people's incomes over the medium to long term, something along the lines of a basic income payment, but then what sort of policy levers government have to do that to target particular groups at a particular period of time. Thank you very much for that. Um, Paul Tucker asks, on the pilot scheme for those mortgages in arrears of more than 10 years, is there a proposed framework for the pilot? There absolutely is. Um, last year, we put an article on our website just putting around the kind of the, the broad brush approach of, of what that framework might look like. So there would be a call, uh, people would apply to it, there would be an assessment. Um, and then if successful, then there would be the, the production of, of um, funding for that. And then there would be a what's called a subordinated debt. So the, the 
the government's charge would be subordinated to the main mortgage, um, which would get it across the line with the likes of, of the BPFI and the central bank. Uh, we have since um, put more kind of flesh on the bones of that proposal and worked it into an actual paper. We've presented it to both the Department of Housing and the Department of Finance, uh, and we are hopeful that it will, will move forward and will progress um, because it could be a, a you know a key instrument in supporting some households who are at grave risk of being made homeless. Um, but certainly, I can put the article in the in the chat, uh, Paul, and you can see the the broad brush of, of that anyway. And if there's any more detail that you wish, please don't hesitate to to get in touch. Um, I we have one in from Sheila Curran. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, thank you for a very clear outline of budget proposals that offers real alternatives to the government. As Ireland is changing to a very diverse and multicultural society, uh, how can the government improve or create other opportunities for social dialogue with all stakeholders and sectors of society to ensure the well-being for all? And Sean, as the, the longest standing member uh, dealing with social dialogue, I might pass that one on to yourself. Certainly, the, the social dialogue issue um, is critically important at this point, and it has been for some time. They, I, I, and I think what we're going to see, if government isn't careful, is a serious reaction uh, by uh, large numbers of people who basically feel that their voice is not heard uh, in the in the discussion. Uh, government might say, "Well, people get elected every four or five years," and they go off and represent you. But I, I think in a modern democracy, that's not good enough. That was fine when you had very poor transportation and very poor communication systems more than a century ago. Um, that like today, it's a different kind of world. Uh, we've instant communication and we can be uh, clear about, about an enormous amount of things over a relatively short period of time. So it's important that people um, that that government recognized the importance of the social dialogue. It's possible to bring it together um, and it, it's possible to bring the groups together. But the issue is government is at the moment just discussing uh, a narrow agenda uh, with uh, a few sectors. So it's, in, it's talking about public sector pay uh, principally with uh, employers and trade unions. Now, that's like discussing pay with employers and trade unions, absolutely fine. That's not, we don't have any issue with that. What we do have an issue with though, is all the other things like that, what the unions might call the social wage. Um, and uh, the employers too recognize that um, for business to thrive, um, you don't need a deeply divided two-tier society. I think everybody in business could, would agree including the leadership of business, certainly in Ireland, would agree that a deeply divided two-tier society is, is not just bad for the individuals involved and the communities, it's also bad for business. Um, so in that sense, there's a mutual support required here that, that the, uh, wherever you, how, whatever direction you're coming at it from, um, involvement of the, the sectors is important. And I think the simplest way to do it right now is to involve the employers and trade unions, absolutely, but to include also uh, the environmental pillar, the, the community and voluntary pillar, and the farming pillar. And these bring together huge numbers of um, people and organizations and communities in Ireland. It isn't perfect. We have to keep working on getting effective ways of doing it, but certainly it can be done and it needs to be done, if you like. Thank you for that. Okay. Um, 
There is another question in from Tricia Keelty from SVP. Hi, Tricia. Uh, well done to all the team and other excellent budget choices document. Thank you. Uh, two questions. What is the best way to embed poverty proofing in the budgetary process to ensure budget does no harm to those on low incomes? And can the EU child guarantee deliver the type of action needed to address child poverty? Uh, Michelle, can I direct those to you, please? Yes, thanks, Colette, and thanks, Tricia. I suppose uh, in terms of the first one, the best way in terms of poverty proving for a start would be to actually impact the uh, system where we already have in terms of social impact assessment and poverty proving that one is supposed to be done by government. Uh, that should be done in advance of the budget every year. And I would like to see those impact assessments published along with the the taxation papers as well. So organisations such as ours and SVP, we actually get to see you know, what the potential impact of different policies are and actually how they interact with each other as well, because that's really important because departments make decisions, but sometimes a decision in one department, for example, regarding the eligibility for medical card criteria might have a major impact on people who also connect with the Department of Social Protection. So I think for a start to implement implement the, the mechanism that is already there to do it in advance of the budget and to publish it along with the taxation papers. And actually thinking longer term, it would be great to have those published before the pre-budget forum, uh, which is run by the Minister for Social Protection. So you have that discussion and that other departments are represented at that forum as well, because it is a really good opportunity for organizations and the department to discuss uh, priority issues and also budgetary issues. But it would be good to have the full representation for the departments and discuss those impacts and the poverty proofing and then obviously what that means in light of our own national poverty targets to go on to the child guarantee i mean we welcome the publication of the the roadmap i suppose it, it's disappointing that it's simply targets that are already there in other strategies and with other departments but we would be hopeful that maybe looking at the midterm review upcoming for the roadmap for social inclusion we might see potentially uh, a higher poverty target there for children and also maybe some higher sub targets then for children um, in the other strategies because the, the action plan itself, it just brings together all of the other strategies and the targets we have, I suppose, in terms of housing for all, uh, some of the education targets, particularly education disadvantaged and others, and that we bring in, we find a mechanism then to bring in sub targets within those for children so that we can meet the EU child guarantee so I suppose it's a work in progress, and that's why we would like to see that initial investment in terms of getting that up and running. Uh, the, I suppose the monitoring of it, the reporting of it, and how the, the community and voluntary sector can actually engage with those targets as well. Thank you very much. Um, and I mean, you know, even just looking across at what they did in New Zealand when they brought in their well-being budget and their their focus initially, their first focus was on child poverty. And what they did was they put it into the Finance Act. So they were then they then had to be accountable by law to poverty proofing any budgetary ideas. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of scope for things that could be done there. Um, Alan Ingalls. Thank you, Alan. Um, why are you so opposed to tax cuts for middle income earners? Middle income workers are suffering too and are getting nothing. Um, OK, so thank you for that. Um, I think this is in response to the Tánis Dalí of um proposal to introduce a, a separate kind of tax 
um, brand for, for people who are earning 45,000 or thereabouts. Um, it's not that we are opposed to it. I mean, the government has already come out. Pascal Donahue uh, came out and said that they were looking at indexing um, the, the tax system. And if they did that, that's a package of two and a half billion euro. Um, so, you know, those mechanisms are there. What we are looking at in terms of investment is rather than tinkering around the edges with an additional tax band or putting, which would essentially push kind of five or six euro a week into people's pockets, we're looking at investing in things like housing and childcare um, and you know, free public transport, things that would actually save people hundreds of euro every month. Um, so it's not a case of kind of the them and us or the separating. It's actually, if you look at this as a society in the round, everybody benefits everybody benefits uh, it's just a matter of doing no harm to those who just absolutely cannot absorb it um so i hope that answers your question there um another one for michelle michelle you're on fire at the moment um this is coming in from hugh o'connor on special schools um you know and you had mentioned your the special education in your piece uh do you think josepha madigan's announcement to legislate that all schools provide special classes is a good thing surely that would create more spaces well, I, the problem with uh, the remarks there and i mean the government is committed to the UN, CRPD and the Epson Act, but we haven't put the resourcing in place to actually deliver on those. I mean, you're looking at about 300 million euros a year in education loan to actually deliver on the Epson Act and the, to provide education to those with um, additional needs. So, I mean, the minister could legislate, but if you don't resource the schools, if you don't provide all the infrastructure and supports that are required for those schools to provide places for students with those needs, then it, the, the places simply will not come on stream. And what we have seen is a huge increase in the budget for SNAs over the past number of years, which is welcome. But alongside of that, it's all the other additional supports that are required for those children to receive an education, a proper education within their own community. And we haven't seen those supports alongside with the increased funding for um, special needs assistance. So that's why we continuously propose in our budget choices every year an increase in the capitation grant for schools. So they can, the schools themselves can implement the adaptations that might be required, I suppose, on an infrastructure level. But it's the additional supports, the, the holistic supports just beyond education. So the, the speech and language supports that might be required, the sensory supports, all the other things that need to be put in place in order to provide places for those children and young people. And I think, you know, in, in advance of September every year, we see, we see the stories from family in the media and realistically they shouldn't have to go to the media to get a, a place for their child in school. But that has not changed because at a government level and at a cabinet level, that resourcing has not been put in place alongside the resourcing for SNAs to ensure that we can provide education for those children. So I think, you know, legislation on its own is not going to provide the resourcing to provide the places. Thank you very much. Um, there's another one in for Suzanne, and this one is coming in from Darren Nugent. Um, Ireland is struggling with many things that Sean pointed out. In terms of housing and education and childcare and all of that, 
Should we put a cap on the number of migrants coming in here? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, the census figures last week showed that we are increasing in number, but that's because we're aging. So, and we need care. So even just something as, as basic as that. So we're an aging population, we need care. We're practically at full employment at the moment. And yet the airport, hospitality, everybody's experiencing staff shortages. So something, there's, there's a gap. And if we're, you know, if, if our own sort of, you know, growth rate isn't, isn't going to meet that gap, um, how do you bridge that gap? So you, you welcome people in. And I suppose there are other issues, obviously, it, but it goes back to everything we've been talking about before. Anybody who enters the country to look for work needs a home, needs access to childcare, needs access to education, transport and healthcare. So as we, I mean, there used to be 9 million of us as well. I think we need to remember that, like there was room for 9 million of us. And, and people move around the world to improve their lot, to improve the lots of their children. That's why people move. Anybody who has an Auntie Eileen in Rochdale or an Uncle Brendan in, in Ealing, like that's why, that's why we moved around the world was to create better lives for ourselves. So I don't think we need to put a, a cap on the number of migrants coming here. It's still not a destination country. I was at a conference there a couple of months back and Catherine Day, who authored the day report on direct provision said that Ireland is not a destination country so we shouldn't we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that there's you know like the, I suppose a lot of the rhetoric say around Brexit you know what I mean that there was going to be hordes of people arriving on these shores she said for a lot of people who arrive in Ireland looking for international protection they only realize that they're in Ireland when they get here they thought they were going somewhere else so there are other countries that are um, are, are, are a preferable destination for people seeking protection. So I think that's also an important thing to remember. But I mean, you're either the land of 100,000 welcomes or you're not. That's as simple as that. You know, anybody who chooses to make their home here, anybody who chooses to live their lives here um, needs access to the same support as the rest of us. And I don't know if anybody watched the citizenship ceremonies last week. Very moving, really, really, really moving. People for whom this was such an important event like they had waited one one had waited 22 years to be granted citizenship and like we take it for granted um i take it for granted and and yet it's it's really important so no, i think i think if we want to grow if we want to uh, move our society forward we need to we just move we need to move up one in the bed it's as simple as that there's there's, there's room there's space for us to grow and i think for us to care for people in our society as well that enter it. Thank you for that. A real child of the 80s, we need to move up one in the bed. Um, and the last question is in from Maria Keane, and it's a, it's a really simple one, uh, Michelle, that you'll have no problem with. Uh, why is it that the health service does not deliver the care people require, even with the huge amount of resources being invested? As I mentioned uh, during the slides, is that we focus on acute care. So we haven't put those resources into community-based care, into enhanced community care, into universal access to GP services, for example, into step-down care facilities, respite care, all the things that it actually takes to, to deliver a health service. And the problem is, is that most of us end up in the acute service 
because not because we can't reach um, or access the the care we require within our community. So the challenge is how do we keep the resourcing, but we need to divert that resourcing away from the acute centres and the acute hospitals and actually put that resourcing into rolling out the reach. I mean, the regional health areas, for example, which are due to be rolled out this year, on paper, they're actually a really good idea. But if they're not fully resourced, they will not succeed, along with many other um, really good health proposals over the years or policy changes that haven't succeeded. So our message continues to be and has always been is that the resourcing that is there needs to be, you need an increase in resourcing for a start to put in the infrastructure for slaunch care so that it will succeed and then move away the resourcing from the acute services. And this is always a struggle. But that resourcing needs to go into enhanced community care, into universal access to GPs, for example, community nursing facilities, respite care, step-down care, all those things that are required to, um, you know, give people access to care within their communities and keep them out of the hospital system. So, it, yes, it seems like a simple answer to a very simple question, yet we continually seem to fall at the initial hurdle of getting those resources diverted to where they will make the most difference. Thank you. Um, and with that, I'm going to draw today's webinar to a close. Uh, thank you so much to everybody for watching today. All of our proposals are available on our website, as I said, socialjustice.ie, either from the first uh, article or down the side of the publication section. And if you'd like any further information, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Um, and you can contact us through secretary at socialjustice.ie or using the form on the website. Uh, thank you so much to my colleagues, Dr. Sean Healy, Michelle Murphy and Suzanne Rogers. And with that, thank you so much to everybody for your attention, for your questions, for your comments. Uh, it's great to see so many people here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Our budget choices policy brief is available to download from our website, socialjustice.ie. As always, if you have any questions, queries or suggestions for the podcast, please get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.